Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. All right, tonight, uh, the title of my message tonight is, What's Your Excuse to God? I was just at my grand, grandkids' house, and they had a million excuses of why they can't do things. Their stomach hurts, their leg hurts, everything hurts. It's always an excuse. It's always something wrong. Sometimes as Christians, we do the same thing. When God calls us, we use excuses not to answer his call for various reasons. So tonight we're going to examine this uh, portion of scripture. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 15. And we're going to study a king that used excuses and disobedience to God. The king was King Saul. King Saul, he was the first king of Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, who was anointed by Samuel. King Saul started out pretty good. He was a faithful leader. Somewhere along the line, his heart got softened and hardened, and he just was more into himself than he was into God. He was anointed by the prophet Samuel. Samuel, who was the son of Hannah, if you might know Hannah from the Bible, anointed Saul. So we're going to go right into the story tonight, if you want to follow. You can follow. It's 1 Samuel chapter 15. And we're going to begin with verse 1. One day Samuel said to Saul, I anointed you king of Israel because the Lord told me to. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Wow. Some of us might think, wonder why God would command the complete destruction of a nation, all the way down to women, children, and animals. It seems very harsh. It would be very harsh during those days, too. Only rarely did God command everything to be destroyed. A key word we can see in this verse is, I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek. It's reminiscent of the term that Jesus uses to describe the final judgment. Every man will give an account for himself before God. It is that that God saying, I decided it's time for Amalek to face my judgment. Judgment is God's prerogative. He is the only one who can judge. He judges rightly. Every one of us is due to appear before his judgment seat. Some will get there sooner than others, but every one of us will appear. In the case of Amalek, this nation brutally attacked the Israelites when they were traveling through the country on their way to chose, on the chosen land. Even though they had offered to pay for the water they drank from to Amalek's wells, they still were attacked and abused and murdered. You might say that this is a pretty tough judgment after all. I mean, these are the grandchildren of, of Amalek. How could they be guilty of what they do? No matter what the reasoning is, God is still just. 
No man may stand before him righteous. Every man is guilty, the Bible says. All have sinned. All of us deserve the same penalty for our rebellion against God. The wages of sin is death. If you stood before God at your judgment, what would you say to him if he asked you why he should allow you to spend eternity with him? You and I have only one reply if we're honest. We deserve the same fate as the Malachites. Every one of us has rebelled against God. We have done our own thing. The only answer that would be sufficient would be you sent your son Jesus to die in our place, and your place. That is the only reason I'm here. And yes, Jesus died in your place and my place, and now our sin has been put away and forgiven, cast as far as the east from the west. So let's look what happens to Saul. Go on to verse 4. So Saul mobilized his army to Laam. There were 200,000 troops in addition to 10,000 men from Judah. Then Saul went to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Saul sent this message to the Canaanites. Move away from where the Amalekites live or else you will die with them. For you were kind to the people of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Canaanites packed up and left. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the Amalite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat calves and lambs and everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. This passage describes what happens. Saul goes out and attacks the Amalekites, but does his own thing. He keeps the best of the animals, the good stuff, and he takes their king as his prisoner. In verse it says, they kept the best of the sheep and cattle, everything that appealed to him. We will have to look deeper why and understand why he would do this after God telling him to destroy everything. At verse 10, the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has again refused to obey me. Samuel was so deeply moved that he heard this and he cried out to the Lord. Did you hear God's word, Samuel? Saul was failed in the loyalty test and the obedience test again. This has brought about a series of consequences that will profoundly affect King Saul and Israel itself. I also feel necessary to tell you a picture of a prophet. The prophet Samuel was moved so deeply that he cried out to the Lord all night. I don't believe prophets delight in telling people off or exposing people's sin. Here, as in many places, prophets are deeply grieved. I believe they express the same grief God has when, he, when, he turned from us, when we turn from him. Prophets are often a picture of God as they go forth the words and sometimes demonstrate the emotions of a God who they represent. In verse 12, it says, Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him Saul went to Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went on to Gilgal. When Samuel finally found, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. 
Now, what is all the bleeding of sheep and lowing of cow I hear, Samuel demanded. It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep and the cattle, Solomon admitted. But they are going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We have destroyed everything else. We find Saul, Saul being exposed. There are several issues that are presented here, and every leader must be aware of them. First, did you notice it set up a monument to himself? This is an act of the kings around them, of the countries around them, that was successful in attributing a victory to themselves. The, the monument is a symbol of pride that has consumed Saul. Secondly, Saul sees Samuel coming from afar off and decides to meet him and greets him with a cheerful tone as an attempt to deflect the coming criticism he might be getting. But Samuel points out the blessings, the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the cattle, to which Saul immediately begins his cover-up and excuses. Excuses are often refusal to our own sin. If we do not own up to our own sin, then it cannot be forgiven. Unforgiven sin will drive a wedge in our relationship with God. It will leave us prayerless. It will make us miserable. One of the things I could hear today is the importance of acknowledging and confessing our disobedience to God. It will enormously affect upon your life and the relationship God has with you. Maybe we acknowledge us to ourselves, but never to others. But when light comes on sin, it's exposed. Someone discovers our sin, it should work as a catalyst for us to acknowledge it and turn away from it. Some of you may say, oh, well, the only reason he repented was because he got caught. Of course, that's great. And if it leads to repentance, that's exactly what God wanted. We should never despise someone who repents of their sin. If God exposed it and then responded, then we should receive as graciously as God received us. Unfortunately, Saul's reaction isn't this way. Saul is not going to admit or acknowledge his sin. Saul starts by saying, but we are going to sacrifice them. And this could be very well true. Was Saul so consumed by his own self-importance that he figured he knew as much as God did? God was his good luck charm, but not as the Lord. Reading at verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What was it, Saul asked? And Samuel told him, Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, Go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they're all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do exactly what the Lord said not to do? Samuel is sick of hearing excuses. He yells, stop. He confronts the sin in Saul and does it directly. He even reminds Saul that he once thought little of himself, but now he's so proud that he ignores God and even sets up a monument to himself. Pride is the root of many sins. Sparing the life of Agag probably provides Saul with a trophy of his proudness and power. When Agag sits at Saul's table, he is much like a stuffed moose on a, on, of a head, stuffed moose mounted on, a, on the wall of a, of a hunter's den. Pride will catch you and uh, I every time. 
You think you know better. You think you have it all together. You think that because you haven't fallen into that old sin in a few weeks, that you haven't conquered, that is all pride. Pride can hurt everyone. Pride can hurt a church, it can hurt a ministry, it can even hurt a pastor. Because I know, because I was part of a church, that that happened. So pride is an evil thing. And the only way pride's power is cut is for God to humble you. If you have been humbled by God recently, you know what I mean. You suddenly see all the lies that you believe about yourself, and you realize just how self-oriented you've really been. Here at verse 20, But I did obey the Lord, insisted Saul. I carried out the mission to give me. I brought back King Agod, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep and cattle and plundered the sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Again, Saul continues with excuses. Here are some reasons why we ignore or tolerate disobedience to God in our lives. Blaming others. By saying it was someone else's fault is a common excuse. He says in the next verse that people pressured him to keep the best. The people get a free meal at God's expense. They are able to share in the sacrificial meal. And second, they are able to sacrifice these cattle to God in place of their own, thus avoiding any real sacrifice on their part. Saul's disobedience has a pious veneer, but at its core, it is self-serving sin. Blame goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent. Blame is the way that we try to deal with our own shortcomings. Without facing them, we pass them on to others. Sometimes we are simply blind or deluded, thinking that we did do what we're supposed to do. Saul happily throws out the garbage. What troubles him is seeing perfectly good things destroyed. He has no trouble killing Amalekite men and the women and the children. He finds it difficult, however, to kill their king, Agag. He has no problem slaughtering all the marginal cattle but he can't stand out to throw the prime USDA beef or lamb. In Saul's case, you might see why he would be blind. It is evident in his reply to Samuel that he says, sacrifice to the Lord your God. Blind spots come from being out of a relationship with God. You and I can have blind spots or areas of disobedience in our lives, and we justify it because we simply are blinded by the God of this world. We are clueless, and yet we are offending God. Any other times, we will minimize our sin. It isn't as bad as others. We compare our sin to others and excuse ours. Saul even tries to tell Samuel that he really, it really isn't so bad, that he isn't doing what others would have done. At least he's going to sacrifice it to God and not to some idol. Hypocrisy is a pride in, in disguise of righteousness. Hypocrisy is believing or acting as if you are righteous when you are in fact hiding sin in your life. Now, there's a fact that every human being is a hypocrite. Everyone has something to hide. Everyone is hiding something from one reason or another. The key for each of us is that we must recognize that we are hiding from God and others and bring it to God so that he can free us from, our, from its control. As Christians, we have been freed from sin's power but you must desire that freedom in order to experience it. If you clutch it and hold it and hide it, 
you will be under its, its power all the time. Saul tries to convince Samuel that going through the motions of religious rituals is the most important thing of all. It is no big thing to Saul to disobey God's command. As long as his disappearance enables him to offer a ritualistic sacrifice to God, but ritual is no different than superstition. It is like saying that you have God on a string, that he is to obey you instead of the other way around. God is more glorified and self more denied by obedience than by sacrifice. It is much easier to bring a bull or a lamb to a burnt offering upon an altar than to bring every high thought into obedience to God and will subject to his will. God is not a puppet. Our passage also warns us about the danger of stratifying sins. The most worst sins are those sins which others practice, where we tend to try to look upon our own sins as much less serious. Let us be warned that disobedience to God's word is looked upon as the worst sin of all. To know what God commands us to do or not to do, and then to disobey, is to willfully rebel against God. We will bear the consequences of God's discipline in our lives. We simply love our sin too much to let it go. It's unfortunate, but many of us won't let go of areas of disobedience in our lives because we simply enjoy it too much. Do you realize how bad God is offended by such behaviors that we tolerate in our lives? It isn't about whether other people know about it. God knows every detail, and he doesn't excuse our excuses. He wants us to be changed. That means we must be willing to lay down the areas of disobedience down because we see them like he sees them. They are sin, and we are willing to call them what they are in our lives. God desires to change your character but you will have to see your sin as such and turn from it, or you will leave him no choice but to expose it and to expose you. So I hope you ask to lead, your, lead God to hate your disobedience as much as he does, that you will ask him to make your sin distasteful to you. When you see sin the same way as God does, you will learn to hate it. Do you know how God sees sin? Just look at the cross and you will see the ugliness of sin. It's what took the life of Jesus, and God had to watch his only son die to pay for its penalty. We will lie and cover up our sin because we don't like exposure. C.S. Lewis once said that a little lie is like being a little pregnant. Pretty soon everybody will know about it. The truth is sort of like a beach ball. If you take a beach ball in the pool and you try to push it down in the water, it keeps popping up. You come jump on top of it again, push it down under the water, it keeps popping up. The truth is like that beach ball. Pretty soon it pops up, no matter how many ways you try to disguise the truth. There was a spiritual advisor for the White House. Not for President Trump, this was years ago. He was a spiritual advisor for the president, and he was invited to a Baptist church in Las Vegas, of all places, to do a speech and they paid his way. They paid for this fancy hotel he stayed up into, and he told them that on Sunday morning that a deacon would come down and pick him up and take him to church for the speech. So that Sunday morning, he went down to the, to the, to the foyer, and he's standing there, and he's fidgeting around, and he's waiting for the deacon to come pick him up. And he puts his hand in his pocket, and he takes out a quarter. 
and he sees the quarter in his hand, and he says, and he sees a slot machine by the entrance. So he puts the quarter in the, in the, in the slot machine, and lo and behold, he hits the jackpot. The quarters keep coming out. He's catching the quarters in the cups. He's putting them in his pocket. He's putting it in his, in his suit jacket. He's throwing it in his suitcase. He's jingling all over the place. And right at that moment, the deacon comes walking in. And he was walking to the parking lot, and you see the jingling and the jangling of the change. And the deacon turns around and says, you didn't gamble, did you? Did I really gamble, he might say. He might rationalize it, or he might excuse that he had what he had done, or he might minimize it, compare it to the people gambling hundreds of dollars on the tables. After all, it was only a quarter. Most of the excuses that we hear are ones that any of us could use when we are caught in a sin or disobedient and brought to light, or disobedience is brought to light. The only solution, my friends, brothers and sisters, is to admit and repent from our sin. Some of you today may be struggling with an area in your life where you have been excusing your behavior or a sin or an area of disobedience to God, and you have been sitting on the fence refusing to let it go. Tonight, I'm asking you to admit it and let it go. That means let it go, all of it, and turn away from it. Partial obedience is really rebellion against God. Saul was almost right. He accomplished almost everything that God has asked, asked of him. The roadsides was covered with the bodies of slain Amalekites, both young and old. The smoke from the burning cities rose toward the heavens. The countryside was littered with the remnants of Amalekite culture. All that remained of this great nation was its king and some livestock. We would probably applaud Saul and his men for a job well done, but not God. God had commanded everything to be destroyed. I can imagine God saying to Saul, what part of all don't you understand? Picking up again at verse 22. But Samuel replied, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifice, or your obedience to his voice? Obedience is far better than sacrifice. Listening to him is much better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as bad as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as bad as the worship of idols. So because you rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Ouch, that must have hurt. That is a pretty strong indictment. He is saying that doing your own thing is the same as setting yourself up as God. That rebellion is the same as witch, witch, witchcraft. Saul had eliminated most of the witches and the mediums from Israel, and yet he is told that his actions are as if he was one himself. Later, Saul seeks out a medium to hear, to hear from Samuel after Samuel's death. He engages into the very thing he condemned. Going through the spiritual motion, motions will not produce the right relationship with God. Going to church will not make you right with God. Jesus is the only way. And the reality of our relationship with Jesus is demonstrated by our obedience in our lives. To obey God is better than all sacrifices. To disobey God and then offer sacrifice is worthless. Looking at Saul's sin in our text teaches us a valuable lesson about spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership is not really about giving people what they want, as much as it's about doing what God wants. Spiritual leaders must first be followers of God, 
Saul is appointed king of Israel. His task is to know God, God's commands and obey it and lead the nation into obedience. Saul's words about the pressure applied by people may be true, but Saul fails to lead in a godly manner. His task is not to please men, but to please God. In our day and time, when leaders are often elected, their election is very often based upon how well they are pleased others. This is not the test of a spiritual leader. The test is how well that person has pleased God by obeying his word and by challenging others to follow him as he obeys. You and I are called to be godly leaders. What we must learn is how to listen to God's voice and obey it when we hear it. We must renounce our own agenda in our life for ministry and respond in radical obedience to everything God has shown us. When we do, when we do the world will be turned upside down. And how do we know this? Because that is what the first century Christians did, and the world is still talking about it. Going to verse 24. Then Saul finally admitted, Yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command, for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. Oh, please forgive my sin and go with me to worship the Lord. But Samuel replied, I will not return with you since you have rejected the Lord's command. He has rejected you from being the king of Israel. Samuel turned to go, and Saul grabbed at him to try to hold him back and tore his robe. And Samuel said to him, See, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. And he who in the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind, for he is not human that he should change his mind. Then Saul pleaded again, I know I have sinned, but please at least honor me before the leaders and before my people by going with me to worship the Lord your God. So Samuel finally agreed and went with him, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Just a curious caveat at the end of the story that I just want to tell you about. Saul was defeated in the battle against the Philistines. And in this, in this battle, he was hit by an arrow. He asked the armor, armor bearer to thrust him through the, with the sword, for he knew if he was caught by the Philistines that he would be tortured. His armor bearer was re reluctant to do so. So Saul sought to commit suicide by falling on his own sword. In 2 Samuel, verse 1, David is walking to hear the results of the battle. When a young man came to him with, with torn clothing, David asked him, how is the battle going? And he told him of the death of Jonathan and Saul. David asked, how do you know that Jonathan and Saul are dead? And the young man told him his story. As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called unto me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said unto me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me. For anguish is come upon me, because my lie is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him, and, he, and I slew him, 
because I was sure that he could not live after what he was fallen on. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them to you, unto you, your Lord, unto David. Saul was slain by an Amalekite who through disobedience to God had not, had not been slain. So what's the moral of this story? If you, if you too not utterly kill the flesh, that part that you save will ultimately kill you. I'd like to play a video, and then uh, after the video, uh, we're going to have a prayer. The Bible says in Acts 17, when Paul came to the city of Athens and he saw all of those wise people who think they know everything, he says, truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked. I mean, when you worship so many other gods and you follow so many other directions and you, you just were so far away, you know what? Those times of ignorance, God overlooked. And I want all of us to say, but now, but now, he commands all men, all men. Can we say that? All men, not some. And he, com he commands all men everywhere. Can we say that? Everywhere. What to? To repent. You see, you take the repent away and it's gone. It's, that's it. So God now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Isn't that amazing? So that's it. No more excuses. The times of ignorance he has overlooked. Now you're in trouble. You can no longer say, I did not know. You know, perhaps you've been struggling with something in your life. Perhaps it's been speaking, this, this message might be speaking to you about obeying. Perhaps you have been trying to compensate for, for your disobedience in your life by being religious, maybe by coming to church, or you're finding no peace. So tonight, I just ask you to repent, and we're going to close with this prayer. Lord, I have been doing my own thing. I haven't been listening to you. In fact, I haven't even been trying to listen. It seems so much easier to, to just figure out on my own. But Lord, I'm not finding any peace this way. I really need you. I confess that I have been disobedient to you in an area of my life. Please forgive me. Thank you for the cross where every one of my sins were paid for and given and forgotten. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that they are cast as far as the east is from the west and that you will remember me, remember them no more. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you. you